What's up, everybody? This is Iron Mike Stedman. And as always, I want to thank you for tuning into my show, Dog Whistle Branding. Today on the show, I'm joined by Dr. James Richardson, author of the book, Ramping Your Brand, How to Ride the Killer CPG Growth Curve. As an avid reader and autodidact, I'm constantly scrolling the internet looking for content to help make me a better brand strategist for the veteran community. And the last few months in particular, I've been educating myself on all things CPG. After coming across Dr. Richardson's book on Audible, I forwarded it to all my clients, and I knew I had to get them on the show to discuss CPG growth strategies and what common misconceptions entrepreneurs have about the space. Dr. Richardson comes from an academic background. He holds a PhD in anthropology, bringing strong research and data to support his growth strategies. Together, we have a great discussion on the CPG space and how veteran entrepreneurs should think about operating within it especially those that are undercapitalized. With that said, Gunny, you know what to do. Saddle up, lock and load. Dr. Richardson, welcome to Dog Whistle Brandon. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for reaching out on LinkedIn to invite me. This should be fun. Such an honor to have you here. Uh, a couple of things you don't realize me and you have in common is I went to grad school for American studies. So I didn't study cultural uh, anthropology, but I focused on uh, American studies with an emphasis in public history. And then now I find myself as an entrepreneur. And most people assume that I went to business school and I got my MBA, but that's not the case at all. So I was always fascinated when I read your book and saw that academic background and how you've been able to pivot that into uh, strategy, uh, advising, as well as uh, becoming a CPG expert. It's all about imagination, Mike. Absolutely. <laughs> and you know, for us in the veteran entrepreneurial community, right, we do have a lot of CPG brands. Like I told you in the pre-interview, I had on True Made Fruits, uh, Abe Carmack, uh, one of my clients at Ironbound Mia, Paula Shaw runs a Cure Leaves Tea Company. And then you've got all these different entrepreneurs that are kind of popping up. So me, being the uh, studious autodidact that I am, start searching online for more research around uh, CPG brands. Your book popped up. I digested it. And I... I didn't even finish the book and I knew I needed to get you on the podcast. So wow. honored to have you here. And I nice. guess we could start by having you, uh, first of all, introduce yourself to our audience and then also talk about, you know, the, the general overview of, of your book. Sure. Yeah, I'm a, I describe myself as an anthropologist turned business strategist, and I've been doing this thing for about 20 years in business. Uh, but the last 10 years or so, I've been focused on studying early stage growth in the world of consumer products. Uh, and I help folks with what's called strategic planning at big companies, which is uh, basically finding that competitive thesis for the business and then building out playbooks against all four P's of execution. So it's uh, very much fueled by market research. So I tend to work with more established companies, five, 10 million and up, because they have the resources to uh, to do the research on the consumers, but also on the market itself. In the in the first couple million, I mean, as I write in the book, it's like, just get out there and go. Right. <laughs> I, I get tired of. Um, I don't. I used to get a lot of these emails. You'd appreciate this, or direct messages like, "Hey, I have this idea, and I'd like to talk to you about it and see if you know they wanted they want to do this vetting <laughs> before they've done anything." And I already know they're in trouble, Mike, when they do that. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's like, are you really an entrepreneur? <laughs> well, one of the things I've been, and I haven't recorded an episode on this for one of my other podcasts, The Transition, but I want to, where it's your responsibility to build your first playbook, right? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like fighting, launching a venture is like fighting gravity. And what worked for somebody else may not work for you. And I think a lot of people get to this point, you know, you've got the Paul Grahams of the world, do things that don't scale, you know, you got Seth Godin, he talks about just get 10 customers, but we're really talking about the same thing about like, you know, I think there's this assumption that people have it all figured out, that there's just this magical playbook that you can apply to your business. But the, the entrepreneur's job early on is to validate the business model first and then make sure it's sustainable. This is something that they want to do. I agree. I mean, there. I don't know if you've talked about this before, Mike, but there, about 15 years ago in, in the really elitist, super creepy world of design, <laughs> I just, because it is, right. <laughs> like the IDO kind of universe, right? There was this movement that actually, it kind of, I don't know that any went anywhere in business, but actually really, 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 really smart. And it's called co-creation. And so there's this idea that the, design, that the innovation team and the entrepreneur can't just figure it all out with research and blah, 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 right? You have to, you have to have some kind of intuitive passion for X solution. Do a half-assed version of it, get it into the market and finish it with your first customers. Right, it's the same stuff over and over again. And so, you know, for me, that's why I really appreciate it about your book because one of the first things that caught my eye was that CPG companies need to focus on doubling their revenue year over year and hit what you call, uh, is it the escape ramp? Skate ramp, yep. Exponential escape, growth, man. Escape <laughs> ramp, ex exponential growth. Um, and so this gives me more clarity when I'm advising my comp clients. I'm like, yo, make sure you just double. We gotta fight tooth and nail to double revenue like year over year. Um, but talk about the book. Give us a quick overview of the book and then we're gonna dive into some concepts that you touched on it. So the book is a, it's a four part mental model essentially on how to plan and experiment in the world of consumer products with, you know, physical goods. And then how to learn from the market, um, how to fine tune the playbook once you've got some learnings and that could take a couple years. Uh, and then how to, how to hit the gas really intelligently as a early stage consumer brand. In the world that I'm in, Mike, 90% of the businesses that get launched are in, they're in a cultural critique of like mass market products. So they tend to be premium priced and they're offering some kind of modern, higher quality thing. So the book is focused on, on founders who are going to have a, you know, a premium business, the Hagen does of their category. Right? Um, and it honestly, as I say in the book, it's the only way you can get the business model once you start doubling every year to produce enough cash flow where you can sort of crawl your way up to a point where you could get external funding from partners. Uh, if you try to go in at Walmart pricing in like your category, <laughs> you better already be rich. In which case, you're not really an entrepreneur. You're just a rich dude. One of the things that, um, so with this, right, and one of the reasons I think I'm fascinated around CPG brands is because as a brand guy, CPG is kind of exciting, right? It's fun. It's hard. You know, you really got to stand out for the crowd. And I feel like your branding really has to be on point. And so one question I have for you right off the bat, what is a misconception you think uh, entrepreneurs have about uh, building CPG brands? Misconception, that's a good question. Uh, there's probably a bunch. I think one is that 
Um, one is that I need to, you know, in the first year or so when you're really, you, have, you haven't even met a customer yet. <laughs> so you don't even know who your fans are. That you have to like go hire a branding agency for like 80 grand, you know. Uh, to do the equivalent of what Pepsi would pay for on a line extension they were doing. Yeah. And it's just not true. Um, there's some basic things I talk in my book that your, your package design should meet, but any qualified graphic designer who's not kind of a doofus will get that right. <laughs> in fact, I actually know a guy, um, I'm not going to mention him in this context, but I know a guy who designed the package for his um, wife's company by doing the following way. He was a graphic designer already, so he did like web design and stuff, but he wasn't a CPG guy or a package designer. But what he did was he went to a bunch of grocery stores and he bought like hundreds of things in the category and he just stared at them, did pattern analysis. And he produced a world-class package design just because he was a good designer, right? You don't, things that people tend to overthink in the beginning are things like that because you have no data so why would you pay? You go to an $80,000 year branding agency, by the way, when your business is like 15 to 20 million, you have reams of data about which customer segments make you money so that you then do the brand identity to speak to them. That's what they, you know, that's research-based branding. But in the beginning, man, this is just a guess. All you need is a clean thing that's going to cause memorability and cause people to remember to recall it when they walk down the aisle, when they see you in a, on the Amazon website. That's all you really need. I've been preaching this lately. Branding, the visual identity is about memorability. Like, are you right. worthy of being memorable? Right. right. And, and then later you can worry about professional branding. And that's about the brand identity speaking to a known audience, which is simply makes you a lot of money. But that you got to figure that out. I mean, you don't start with that knowledge. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not, I think people overthink it, Mike. They totally overthink it in the beginning. Right. So one of the sayings we have on the show is business is a contact sport. So I'm a boxer. You want to get good at boxing, you can hit the mitts, you can hit the heavy bag all you want, but you better get in that ring and start sparring and you learn those lessons real quick of what's working and what's not working. And so that's what it sounds like you're reinforcing. Like you don't have any data. So you're just making up off of all these assumptions, but once you start going to market, you start trying to sell this product, people aren't buying or they are, then you have a better understanding of who's doing it and why they're purchasing. And the, the, the related misconception, just to finish off this topic, is that in the world that I'm in, at least, especially in food, there seems to be this tendency to project <laughs> when you're doing the whole visual identity, project yourself <laughs> as the consumer audience for the thing that you haven't even sold yet. Like you don't know that the audience that's going to make this thing sing is you. They may not resemble you at all. Uh, so what, and what you wind up with is like the classic sort of hippie health food <laughs> package design <laughs> because the founder is talking to themselves on the package. <laughs> and that actually can be a disaster because it ends up, you start with this really niche segment hypothesis that you haven't vetted. So I'm, as you read the book, I'm much, I much more prefer, it doesn't have to be ugly. I mean, it should be beautiful and it should be visually attractive, but it, it really shouldn't have too much of a message in the beginning. 
if that makes Why sense. do you think so on this is interesting to me, right? Um, how I've heard that a lot of venture capitalists are really liking CPG. A lot of people are investing money. But as an entrepreneur, I'm thinking CPG products are probably like the hardest business to launch because you got to sell, excuse my language, a shit ton of volume <laughs> in order to pay yourself $100,000 a year. Hell, $40,000 a year. So what is so attractive about this space and why do entrepreneurs keep you know, going into it, entrepreneurs and investors? Well, I think the entrepreneurs are doing it out of usually out of a product level passion, like they're obsessed with their product. They usually don't understand the business side. And they kind of a lot of them stumble right into the hell, the, the profit and loss hell of, of the startup world. And you're right, you just alluded to it. You can't uh, talk in my, uh, on my the first episode of my podcast about this death funnel thing. And it, the, one of the reasons why statistically in consumer brands, there's this massive die off uh, right around half a million in terms of the number of brands still in business is because until you get past that, you can't cover your fixed costs as a business in CPG because it's that expensive. And I'm including that you're paying yourself nothing. So you're talking about 100,000 salary, you're going to have to be at least a couple million dollars a year in gross revenue before you can figure that out for yourself. That could take four years. You know, so a lot of people kind of stumble in because they have the passion for the product when they're not really understanding the, the total, like, the business model, essentially, of consumer packaged goods. I think, um, you know, and I, I don't focus on that business model in the book because I was really, was really writing it for Warren Berger startups <laughs> who were set up to be able to iterate what they're doing. But um, there really isn't a there really isn't actually a go-to place to understand all those PL dynamics. There are folks who work on that with clients. That's basically all they do. Um, but yeah, if you don't, you know, I would not advise people to go start consumer brand uh, after reading my book, <laughs> getting excited. Like you need to go through a few more steps before you want to green light that. Um, and you have to be ready for the the cash flow reality. It sucks. And it's worse now, actually, than before COVID-19, just because the costs of getting to the shelf, including getting to the Amazon warehouse, have gone way up. I mean, Amazon fees have exploded. So they're no different than getting into Safeway. It's, it's tough. Um, you know, the, the folks that I trust on these matters will tell you, you should have a couple hundred thousand dollars you're prepared to waste. As a seed capital, I would hope you have more, but um, it's not really a, the CBG world is no longer, if it ever was, a, a thing where you want to like just grab a credit card and go. Right. <laughs> you know, it, I, there are other categories and industries where you could pull that off. So one of the things I'm curious to learn from you is, are a lot of the clients you're working with or what you've seen for early stage founders, how intentional are they about designing the category and positioning their product or service in it. Because, you know, when I got exposed to the process of category design, you know, there's like mixed reviews about it, right? Some people are like, you got to design a category. Other people are like, don't do category design. But it's like one of those things, once you see it, it's like you can't unsee it. Because to me, in my mind, I'm like, wait, I'm going to launch a new product and I'm going to go compete against these guys that have millions of dollars and they've already got all this years of, experience and data ahead of me or am i going to go create something new right and position myself as a category king? so i um i think you're talking about the issue of building a 
consumer brand essentially in a new quote unquote new category versus, you know, I would like to be the modern cliff bar, right? In a existing category, like we all know the territory. <laughs> um, we know how the shelf works. We know how to sell in. But then I've got hard kombucha would be a great example. It's like, exactly. what is it? Where does it go? <laughs> Everything is new from placement to pricing. There's no price comp for the consumer. They, what, what should it cost? I have no idea. But here's the thing. This can get overdone, Mike, this distinction, because here's the when you study consumer behavior as long as I have, you're always competing with something. And this is the way I frame it, is that you are competing on the occasion of consumption. So I drink a lot of Spindrift. Spindrift is taking the money from somewhere where I spent it before. And it was basically decaf coffee. I can tell you what it was. <laughs> so that was my sort of mindless beverage. <laughs> but they won. Um, now, are they in the same category? No. Like from a, from a strict category merchandising perspective, they're totally unrelated. But culturally, they aren't. Because they're both low calorie. And they have flavor. Because I'm trying to avoid tap water. <laughs> so it's just, that's what my brain is trying desperately to do. So I find this to be better. It's more exciting because it has fruit juice. Maybe I'll stop in three years. I have no idea. But there's always a com something you're competing with. One of the things that um, folks in new categories have to take seriously earlier than others, like the latest nutrition bar, <laughs> is that they really have to understand where they're, they call it in marketing, where you're sourcing volume from in the retail environment. They really have to take that seriously because, you know, if the category is, if they're a $5 million brand, the category is 50 million and there's like seven other little small brands with them. Um, it's pretty clear that people were not, you know, are coming into this category. They were drinking something else. 95% of the consumers who are buying were just drinking something else on a specific occasion. So it, the real insights emerge when you have enough of a fan base that you can go out and talk to them and survey them about what were you having before, brand Z, why, and get a little bit of that why. I focus on outcomes, you know, what were you trying to do on that occasion? Were you trying to get drunk? Were you trying to, you know, get hydrated? What were you trying to do? Um, um, or maybe it's the interplay. And that's actually what hard kombucha is really attacking right now. It's an adjunct of the light beer space. Um, but it's also sourcing from bizarre categories as well. If you can figure out where you're sourcing from, that can become a huge marketing asset for a new category. I'm a big fan of what you're talking about, though, about not just saying, oh, I'm going to throw this new category out there, but it's looking. Where are people already spending their money? Where are they already spending their time? Where is the overlaps, right? And I use this podcast as an example, right? A lot of veteran-owned businesses aren't spending money on podcasting. They spend a lot of money on uh, shitty uh, marketing people posting on their social with no ROI. So that's how I created Dog Whistle Branding as a way to show the veteran entrepreneurial community that there's a better way to approach marketing by thinking with a positioning and a branding first mindset. Yeah, and I think what I learned years ago doing when I did consumer you know, behavior research for big companies full time was that if you can get in front of your fans and figure out, um, and usually they can bring it up to the conscious level, right? It's not some 
ridiculous esoteric psychological thing going on. These motives are not that complex and they can talk about, we can talk about them. Um, if you can get that why out of your fans, the heavy, the people who are consuming a lot of your product, so they're more, they're more profitable to the business, then you take that and you feed it back. You feed it back into the brand identity, to the package design, to the symbol, to every touch point. You even feed it into your sales strategy in terms of which channels you're using to generate new households versus which channels you're using to actually just give a volume discount to your fans. Costco. <laughs> right? <laughs> no. yeah. you, you hook them at Whole Foods and it's where it's cool and hip and then they get into it and now they want a deal. Like, where do I get Spindrift? I... You know, well, I do get some of it Whole Foods because I'm there all the time. But, but I also, you know, buy it by the case online. <laughs> so it's just like, so understanding that why can help you figure out almost all of your activation as a business. You got to commit to doing that, though. And, and I think that's um, one of the things that shocked me, Mike, you'll appreciate this, when my business was floundering as a consulting business the first two years because I just <laughs> I just assumed everybody wanted consulting because I'd just come from a consulting firm. Right? <laughs> they all wanted it desperately. They just couldn't afford it. <laughs> that was my wrong assumption. <laughs> but then I started to soak with like new founders at trade shows and stuff. And I, I, I met hundreds of people and I'm massively introverted. I can't stand it. I don't like, like, I can't cold call. I can't do any of that stuff. I literally become exhausted. So it was painful. I did it anyways. And what I learned was that, no, they're not looking for that. They just want to go sell their thing. So until they've had some painful experience, right. <laughs> they're not even open to it. Like the notion of it. In fact, it just seems ridiculous. So um, their pain for you is like trying to get to that next level. Or that they've plateaued. That things well, I work working. with people who are doing pretty well, to be honest with you. They just want to keep doing well. So in the world of consulting, I'm called an optimizer. And it's the case study knowledge in that context that's in my book or alluded to in my book, which is the value I'm bringing to them. Because I'm a professional diagnostician. You hand me a $30 million business and I will, I will find the problems. And I will find the good things. It's a, lot, it's a crap ton of data you have to synthesize to figure that out. Um, but since I do it for a living, I'm going to see things that the founder won't. See, they care about it at $30 because now you have something to lose. You have succeeded already, but it could go away. You know, I talk about it in my book. There's a lot of, there are a lot of businesses, dude, that get to 20 and 30 and they hit a glass ceiling. They cannot figure out why. They can't grow. What is the biggest cause for that? Is it because I'm thinking if I'm a veteran entrepreneur, I start a business. 20, 30 million dollars, I'm winning, right? That's the assumption, yeah. but people don't and, realize. And look, look, you are. If that's how you define success, I want a stable business and X amount of salary, then yeah, you've absolutely won. You've won the freaking lottery. Um, by the way, if you have a $20 million business that's stagnant, there's plenty of buyers for those. You'll be able to sell at a small multiple. So you can also just cash out with a pile of cash <laughs> and just do something else with your life. So, so many ways to succeed with that result. I don't work with those folks. I work with the crazy people <laughs> who want to get to 100 million and beyond. They're either egomaniacs or they're crazy. I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> those are the folks that, that I work with because it, there's a whole level that's not covered in the book that you have to really get into to do that. Now, one reason you don't, people don't get past 20 million is 
their business model is flawed. They don't make enough, their gross profits suck, right? If you go to this fancy food show in New York, like most of the booths, that's the story. <laughs> if, you, if they showed you their balance sheet, <laughs> they don't have any dollars to invest in anything other than production and getting it to stores. And they don't care. Some of them, they just don't care. I mean, they, a stable business is all they needed. Um, but you don't have the oxygen in the business to, to, to invest in rapid growth. I'm not even, you know, and you need that even to get investors, you know, because investors are not going to invest in low gross margin businesses. They just don't because they don't like the finances. So some of my clients have, you know, institutional investors, most of them just have angels. You know, I've worked with a Mark Cuban company. So, you know, it's, you know, those are essentially angel investments on, on that show. <laughs> and that's actually a great structure for these guys um, in many ways because it allows you to retain a lot of control over the business, but also the leadership of it all the way to your exit. But the other reason that businesses stagnate is that they, they didn't actually ever talk. I know this sounds great. They never talk to their consumers. And they never understood how niche the proposition was. <laughs> and so it never had the potential to scale. So they were like running to a dead end. Yeah. So I work with a lot of folks who, they usually come in earlier than that. What they've done is they've done something called platforming, which is they've, they're, they're like seven categories. <laughs> they're like all over the grocery store. <laughs> and often it's some nutritional thing that got them going like, um, oh, keto or right. or crossfit uh, low carb or something whatever it is you know yeah. it's some principle and they're like oh well i'll do that and this and this and this and this and this and suddenly i got all these upcs of all this complexity but there's no hero there's no like three to five upcs driving 90 percent of the business with a pack design that people talk people have burned into their brains products that are so exciting that they tell 10 people every month because there's no focus. <laughs> so platforming and lack of product focus is the number one reason. And they fall into a, what I call a B2B mindset, Mike, where they're like, they tend to work with brokers and sales consultants who are all about, this is how you work a buyer. You work a buyer with a new item every year, new items, bring in new items, you know? And it's just like, <laughs> and that's how the thing unravels. And I think that, I think that translates back to first time founders, because that's what they think. They think they need to have all these different products out there and it's killing their margins, right? They're only like one or two person shows, so even to fulfill all those different orders, it's just a pain. But before we move forward, just so we're clear, what does UPC stand for? Universal Product Code. So it's a bar, it's the barcode number on the back of every package at the grocery store, somewhere. Gotcha. Yeah. And is that typically like the hero products? Uh, no, everything has the code. That's a legal requirement. Um, but uh, the hero products will be the ones that you have seen in the data, and I do a lot of work with, on, with clients to identify them. Uh, they call it skew rationalization, right? So I got 35 UPCs, the business is doing okay, it's growing, but I've got all this dead weight. So you go through them and you do, you do a professional analysis on, yeah, but this is, a, this is not the right category. There's, there's no upside in terms of the addressable market, so we're gonna kill those three. And here's the five that are really driving most of your money and have the most upside. So it's this weird, it's like a little chess puzzle. You know, you got to look for the UPCs that have, that are performing well now. You can explain why that's important. 
<laughs> if you haven't talked to your consumers, you cannot explain why. <laughs> That's my position. <laughs> so I know you were talking about a, almost like a negative thing, mainly because I think people don't understand their platform. But I was actually thinking to myself, damn, platforms might not be a bad way to get started for a small business. You know, you might not get that exponential growth. But when I think of like I do CrossFit, right? I think about all the businesses that launched off the back of CrossFit, everything from FitAid, you know, you got the Protogenics, right? Like for a community. And you talk about this in your book are like, is there kind of habits and are they? So they here's the thing about, here's about, here's the thing about human behavior I learned. It's about consumer behavior, Mike, in the United States at least. But I think this applies to most urban cities in the world from Singapore to Boston. We're so oversaturated with products to buy. So many choices. It's, in, it's totally irrational if you step back from it. There's, most of the stuff doesn't need to be here. It is. That forces us to make all these decisions. The reality is that um, people need to, they need an easy, clean way to make choices. The problem is that it, it, it retards the formation of a strong memory around the trademark. The logo. Because if you are, if you are in eight categories and they've seen you all over the store, a some of your consumers are they figure that out and so they they are unconsciously see you as not expert. So when you're in this oversupplied world that we live in of consumer goods, the way you introduce a new brand is to be hyper focused and to essentially appear as the cool hip new expert on something. That's the kind of signal that people will pick out of the noise and pay attention to. Otherwise, you're just a random option. I'm at Sprouts, I needed oatmeal, I bought this random startup brand. There's so many brands that have half or more of their volume, Mike, from literally, I was already in the retailer you sell in, I don't give a shit about you. That's not a real customer. Right, Matt, you call those, I forgot what you call those people. And you're right though, you set up a pop-up booth somewhere, you get all these people that might try your stuff, but it's really messing up your data because they're not your perfect customer. If they're just buying you because they were in the store and needed this category, I mean, you'll take the money. Well, I'll take the money. But you don't want that many of your people driving your business, those kinds of people driving your business early on. You need repeat purchasing geeks and fans um, because that's how you create, that's how you sell 30 units per store per week at a specialty retailer, not two. I guess going back to the platform thing, maybe I didn't articulate it. I think for small businesses, and I'm curious to hear your perspective, if I'm a small bootstrap business, I think that building a CPG product for a really passionate community, serving a niche community, is an, way, is an okay thing to do, right? Um, with the understanding, like yes. you said, that there's a limit. That like, hey, how many people out there actually do CrossFit? I don't know, but probably not you know, 1 billion, whatever. So, well, I mean, to use that analogy, picking those lifestyle groups is fantastic because what it usually does is it, it, um, if you designed a solution that you vetted already, your chances of succeeding better with your first draft in the market are going to be much, much higher if you've done that. Right. So that's great. Start. It's a great start. It's just not the end of it, but to follow the CrossFit example, what you don't want to do is try to start a CrossFit gym. And then a CrossFit supplement brand, thinking right. that you're, you have, I'm going to have 12 solutions for this CrossFit community. You're going to have 12 business models that you're, you're mediocre, you're managing in a mediocre manner. 
That's the real problem. And I see the same thing in CPG because if the brands that are in like eight categories and, and they're, the eight categories add up to 2 million, I always cringe because I deep down my experiments, my experience suggests <laughs> that they have not, they have not produced superb products in every one of those eight categories. I appreciate you coming back on this one. This is a million dollar insight. Someone about- cut corners. <laughs> yeah. Now this was a million dollar insight and it was, it helped me understand what you were saying about like, don't be the gym that's trying to serve all these different people. You're like, Oh, we've got them here. We're just going to expand our vertical and all these different products. Right? <laughs> that's to- what you, yeah. That's what you do. Mike, when your gym is crushing it and you have 10 franchise locations, then you might launch a supplement brand. Right? So I talk, if you, if you build a great product to 50, 75, $100 million, that's the time to say, because you actually have a brand. You have a brand where the logo causes people to try the next new thing. And that's a power, that's what everybody wants. They want the logo to inspire trial. Like, I just believe in it, baby. Like, Spindrift just launched a spiked seltzer, right? I don't know. It's never going to be a big part of their business. But the trial is going is all their fans. I mean, we will blindly try everything they put that logo. <laughs> so, but see, they've already got a big brand. What are your thoughts on these venture studios? So I read a lot about science and uh, liquid death. And then one day I walk in my girlfriend's apartment and I see off-limits cereal. And I was like, what the heck is that? Pour me a bowl up. Been crushing <laughs> it ever since, right? I haven't ordered any online <laughs> yet, but I need to. But, you know, I see these basically these venture studios that have experience launching CPG brands, they're creating operators to help them get to that past that part where you don't work with them. And then they hand them off to, to guys like you. Um, (laughs) Um, I haven't dialogued with a lot of those folks. So you may actually know more than me um, about how they set up. I'm a, I know if I'm hearing you right, these are the folks that usually they were entrepreneurs before. And what they're trying to do is create like an incubator where they, they vet people with raw product ideas or concepts, get them more operationally fluent. They're usually investing, right? And so, yeah, or they're coming up with the ideas in house and they source entrepreneurs to, to uh, run them, make it. Yeah. I, I don't know. All I can say is I don't know a single business that's scaled in CPG with that model. Now, part of it is because it's new. So that's not a really fair critique. Yeah. But because I don't know anyone who's pulled it off, I don't know that it's any better. CPG is just hard. I I don't know it's any better starting point than really understanding a consumer niche that probably you're part of, solving a problem with your product, caring about the design, busting your ass to make a really great tasting thing in food and beverage, and getting out there and finishing it in the market in the first couple of years. I mean, that approach is what Kindbar did. What it really comes down to is what you're saying is brilliant in the basics. Because this is the thing across the board for most entrepreneurs, right? Like you said, fall in love with a problem, you're uniquely positioned to address, create an awesome solution for it, find a tribe of raving fans that believe in it, that support it, that spend their money, and then scale up, you know, gradually, be a smart business person. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is that double, I mean, depending on where you are in your journey in entrepreneurship, doubling the business every year sounds terrifying. Like, that'll never happen. Um, and, and the odds are low in like the first million dollars of that doubling happening. It's very hard at that stage. Um, cause you don't have the capital to do all the fake 
growth techniques, right? The real issue is once you get to be about 10 million in CPG, the retailers are now coming to you. So you're now, you really are going to be tempted to do some stupid stuff. Right. <laughs> like blow it out in Walmart, even though the Walmart shopper in your category probably doesn't want your thing. Or maybe 2% of them do. That's my favorite. Like the California Walmarts are doing great. <laughs> it's just like, well, gee, I wonder why. <laughs> now, is there, so one of the things I know I keep reading about is that, you know, at a certain point, these DDC brands realize that they need a retail, right? Woohoo! Even early on, to be honest, because you need to get the product in people's hands. So five years ago, people were just spending money on Instagram, doing this, doing that, right? They changed their algorithm. And now you see a lot of brands where they're setting up these retail stores. Why is that important for uh, these brands? Why can't they just overly rely on DTC? It really depends. Actually, I know this is like an academic kind of answer, but it really depends on literally the narrow category of good. I mean, it, I'm talking peanut butter versus paper towels. Those seem like nano distinctions probably to the listeners. But in the world of CPG, and if you think about it culturally in your own life, there's all these assumptions about how you're going to go find your peanut butter <laughs> versus your paper towels. Um, you know, peanut butter is being bought generally in routine weekly shopping trips, right? So it's it because most shopping still happens in a out of a retail supermarket near your home. <laughs> the whole center of gravity on the culture of shopping in that category means that most of the freaking volume, mass market volume, is going to be in brick retail. So that's why you care, Mike, is that if you're in one of those categories, you might get to 100 million online. That's great. I mean, that's very rare, by the way. It's extremely rare in CPG. Most of the time I see people topping out at 10, 15, 20 million max, you know, in a traditional supermarket category. Um, if you're doing something like Huel did out of the UK, you can create a $40 million business in two years online because Huel is like this weird $2 meal supplement thing. And it was a brilliant execution before the Apple privacy things probably killed their business model. <laughs> I don't know if they make any money now, but they, but that's a little different because they're selling essentially this medical food to you. But if you're shopping for real food categories or real drinks, the bulk of the money is, is going to be in retail for years to come, right? You might catch, you might hook them online. That's great. But you're going to have to figure out how to make that transition. The number one thing people screw up is their packaging is not set up for retail. So just think about, you'll like this, think about this. So I've seen tons of folks do this where on the screen, their logo, because of the way your eye frames things perceptually, the, the logo is big enough for people to quickly read and understand. You put it on a shelf next to its competitors at Safeway, the thing might as well not even be there. Because people start looking for products. They look for their category first as they go down an aisle. They're looking from 20 feet away, dude. And then when they get closer to the cat, oh, ah, there's the ketchup. Now they're looking for brands. And so now they're about five to six feet away. If you can't, if you can't pop out at five to six feet and they can't see your little thing, your, your little 18.5, right. you're absolutely screwed. So I'm actually reading um, Playing to Win, you know, by, uh, what's his name? AJ, RL AJ Lafley, RL Martin. You know, and you start thinking about how these Bitco brands, they got all that data. 
So little stuff like you talked about, which to me, a disruptor entrepreneur doesn't even think about, right? But it's so important. It's that kind of nuance, which is why it's important we have, you know, experts like you putting this kind of content out there because otherwise people are like lambs to the slaughter. I ha yeah, I have worked with three DCC companies on their retail bridging and every single one of them, uh, it's like, even before the contract was signed, I'm like, well, I know what the packaging recommendations are, <laughs> you know? And every single one of them, I, I said, your font on the trademark needs to be three to four times large, immediately. And they would then say, why? I'm like, because no one can read it from six to 10 feet away. And this is not advanced. This is not why you go hire an $80,000 branding firm either. This is basic shit. <laughs> But this is why this actually transitions to my next point of you're a big proponent of CPG companies doing, I think you call it micro research, like that initial research. Like, where do people begin with that? So for me, I'm a I'm a social person. I just kind of talk to people. I read books. But I think you're talking about going a little bit more academic, just a little bit, a little flavor. Yeah, I have a, I even have a sorry to plug, but I have a course on my site, which will teach you in six hours how to do basically professional social science interviews, it's really not that hard. The hardest part is being, is to check your own subjectivity and, and, and ask like a scientist. That's the biggest challenge people have, but the tech, the doing it isn't that hard. You've got to build up some kind of list, right? So if you're one of the, the brands I love, you've been doing field marketing, um, online selling to build interaction, not just to make money, right? Um, and so you have email lists or followers, and so you can reach out to people, right? You could like reach out and say, hey, I'll give you a free case if you get on the phone for half an hour with me. My, my clients are always amazed when people actually respond to this. They, they think that no one will respond. I'm like, are you fucking crazy? The people in Spindrift are dying to do an interview. <laughs> you know, It's the Pepsi consumer that has to be paid $700 to show up. It's the people that are super fans. It becomes a part of our life, yeah. right? It's like this, well, and you know, I feel I'm... Yeah, and I think I'm fucking cool, Mike, because I have this. That's that's it's my ego, really. It's my consumer ego, which is driving me the interview. Like, I love your thing. Here's why. So people will show up. It doesn't take a lot of work. You just have to, you have to set yourself up to ask the right questions. And you know, my teaser for the course is it's all about coaching you how to ask open-ended questions that are not loaded. With this research, is this something an entrepreneur can conduct ahead of time to seek out and capture? kind of long-term, long-term loyal No, I, I don't reckon, I wrote, I didn't design the course to, for people to do as they were finishing their thing. I still believe that you should suffer. <laughs> you should, you have to be passionate enough to just believe that it's just like an author, right? If you're going to be a successful author, you have to believe that you can write the novel. You deep down probably know, since it's your first novel, it's going to have some problems, <laughs> but you have to believe you can do it and get it done. Then you get it out there and you start getting the feedback. And maybe you never publish it. Maybe you never do another draft. Maybe you burn it and do the next novel. Or maybe you, you, you're, the feedback is mostly good, but eh, right? Now you do, you do more drafts, then you publish it, right? This is the same theory I'm talking about in my book is you gotta have the passion to stick your fucking neck out you know, with your thing, get it out there, sell it, generate that initial customer base, and then at the very least, get them on the phone or meet him in a coffee shop and ask them, tell me your story. How did you, I'm so honored that you buy my thing. How did you, like, 
the, the way I what I teach in my course is you have to you have to come from a place of monkish humility when you do research on your fans. You have to basically assume that your product is not worthy of them. <laughs> You know, and if you start the interview that way, people will just absolutely open up. But the problem is a lot of founders, <laughs> I usually recommend the founders don't do the research. <laughs> usually someone else on their team. <laughs> so, but if they can handle it, it's all about going in and just listening to them say, tell me the story. How'd you find it? Why? And you almost play the devil's advocate. It's like, don't assume that they naturally should have come to love Spindrift because as a social scientist, like this doesn't make any sense that this is like a hundred million dollar business. This should not have succeeded. It really should. I mean, there's plenty of crap to drink that's low calorie. <laughs> you know, it's not like that wasn't the issue. So it had to fight. And so the consumer is the only one who can really tell you what the magic was. And if you can find the patterns there in those, even in phone interviews, you might unlock a marketing campaign right there for very little money. Um, oh, by the way, when you give someone a free case of your thing that already loves you, you'll get a word of mouth, instant word of mouth boost. One thing you touched on in the book, but I was hoping I was I was hoping you're going to do the deep dive, but you didn't. Uh -oh. You hint at the I like to call it the 300 missing pages in the vitamin water story. You know, like I, I caught up on vitamin water that like 50 cent invested. And then it's like this hundred million dollar business. And he takes out, you know, 50 million or something. But in the book, you talked about vitamin water was starting with like 99. Yeah, they, it bus. started on it started in in the beach culture of Santa Monica and Venice Beach. They they created these things called hydrology fans. They were one of the first modern businesses to do. I mean, they were riffing off Red Bull, Red Bull to some extent, which was already in the market, creating a massive stir. But they created these hydrology fans, brand, wrapped and branded. And they literally would serve the vitamin water with, with like beer taps on the side of the fan. <laughs> that was their sampling. <laughs> they just made it sexy and cool. Um, they made it an experience, right? They made it hard to forget such that when you went to Safeway in Santa Monica, you saw it there and you grabbed it. But like you said, I mean, I had to fight tooth and nail for five years before they got to. No, it was a bit. It was a. Yeah, it didn't. There was no there was no resounding immediate. Wow, this is the next blank. As with most of these stories, Kleinbar is my favorite because I was in consulting for big food companies at the time that Kleinbar, you know, appeared at Whole Foods and was starting to go national in the U.S. and was taking off. Now, we realized there, hmm, there might be something going on here because <laughs> we were talking to the leading-edge consumers who are driving a lot of trends. But the food industry thought they were a joke. You know why they thought they were a joke? Because there's no plant in North America that can make a kind bar back then. And to them, you know, a big company looks at any innovation, they're like, well, if I can't insert it into my manufacturing plant ecosystem, it's bullshit to me. That's it, doesn't it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. That's what I was going to ask you. For veteran entrepreneurs that are entering the CBG space, what advantage do they have over these Bitco companies? Right? Because, because you are crazy enough if you put your life on the line, on the, you, especially in the Army, and you did tours and you came back, you have the, I think you have the mental fortitude most likely to get through this hell we've been sporadically talking about but you might just be bold enough to innovate something that actually nobody else can make like and that's my big recommendation for folks who have a little seed money is 
really think about that idea. Don't force it, but it needs to be an idea that would require you almost to create a pilot facility and scale that facility up. That's great. It's never been cheaper, actually, to get the equipment, actually. This is kind of interesting. The last 20 years, if you talk to R&D folks, various kinds of mixing equipment and stuff like that, it's not as expensive as it used to be. It used to require a PepsiCo kind of budget, but you can, you can rent a warehouse, you know, an FDA-approved section of a warehouse and sort of do a pilot thing and then get the thing going. It, it's a more financially complex route, but if you want to really build something, it needs to be something that can't just be ripped off. Because the other reason, Mike, that businesses stagnated 20 million, a lot, I see this in salty snacks quite frequently. It's because there's nothing technically insulated about it that Frito-Lay can't rip off tomorrow once they decide they care. You know? <laughs> there's no secret recipe hidden in a vault right. somewhere. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and I Or a technical issue, like Kind Bar had a technical, there was no, bars up until then were these things called slab bars, like Power Bar invented it. It's just this fucking paste of stuff. And it's extruded, <laughs> you know, um, it's extruded at high temperatures to kill the bacteria. And then it's wrapped packaging out to go. It's a very specific kind of manufacturing line in most bars, Nutrigrain, Power Bar. They're all doing some version of that power. Uh, Nutrigrain is more of a baked product, but that's what the machinery can do. Right. And that's true. If you went to go rent a, a facility, that's what the lines are set up to do. They weren't set up to make a kind bar. So when they started doing it, he talks about this in his book, when they started doing it initially through Comans, um, the lines kept nicking the almonds, like scraping and scratching them. When you scratch an almond, uh, a, even a cut almond, you take that skin off, it will go rancid as it moves through the supply chain. <laughs> Can that? <laughs> so, they had, so they were like, oh crap, well now we have to glaze the almond. Right. I mean, they, it was kind of a, they very much learned from all these technical issues. They wound up with a process that they did, like nobody else did it. So that's why you still today don't see a ripoff of Kind Bar. What about cultural? I think, what about, let me rephrase this. I think of a company like Black Rifle Coffee, which has really just kind of established itself as like the veteran-owned coffee brand. Veteran is a very sensitive space to kind of operate in, you know? We call bullshit on, on things, right? So although they're not necessarily innovating like coffee per se, they are innovating the messaging, the positioning, kind of all of that. That makes it hard for someone outside of that community to come in and speak to, like they can do things and address the veteran audience in a way that other brands right. can't do. Correct. No, I get it. Um, yeah, I we're, we're seeing a couple case studies of that working. Uh you know, Liquid Death is the newer one uh, where they, they picked this bizarre niche of California punk rock, <laughs> built the whole brand identity around. Well, I think because the founder was a participant at some point in his life. So it was like going back to his youth or something. But uh, but he knew the community, knew the audience. He knew how they thought. Uh, I don't, I'm not super bullish about that as sort of a generalized approach. I'm not against it. And here's why I have, I'm concerned about it is that if the product experience on the consumption occasion, whatever your category you're in, isn't profoundly memorably different, <laughs> or the symbolism around it isn't different, um, you may conquer that group, right? You'll conquer that group 
but it's going to cost you a lot of money. So liquid death, just to be clear, folks, started with $3 million in seed money. I didn't write the book behind me for people who have $3 million in seed. Yeah, I don't know the Black Rifle story, so I'm not going to comment. Yeah. But usually it's much more expensive, Mike. Yeah. That, that's I had a guest on my podcast who said that. He's like, let's just be clear. A lot of these guys started with money. And Liquid Death actually came through the uh, incubator I talked about, Science. So they were one of the first kind of investors in it. So that's that that kind of model. Maybe they'll be the first CBG company, like you said, that goes yeah. through and uh, hits, you know, billions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, I think Liquid, you've seen Liquid Death, what they've done quickly, which I think was important, was that they, they've turned off all the punk rock messaging and all that shit. It's gone. So they literally did that. No, I'm serious. It's like two years, I think they did that. They got it going. They got the business model going. Now they're doing edgy advertising, edgy audience, but they seem to be trying to go for more mundane suburban segments, right? Yeah. Which you I have to do. I found out about them on a podcast. <laughs> I was like, what is Andrew Schultz drinking? What is that? Is that a monster? Then I'm walking in Whole Foods. I'm like, you know what? Instead of me spending $2 on my sugary, healthy drink that I eat with dinner, I'm going to be healthy and <laughs> spend a dollar and a half on this canned water. Yeah, it's the fear that I have having worked for big companies that rely mostly on brand and logo, I'll be honest, not on the quality of the product, is that it's expensive to get it going and that it dies really fast. So my big concern with Liquid Death or Black Rifle is, yeah, they scaled, they may, they may collapse really fast too. Yeah. You know, whereas Kind Bar, because it's product level innovation, um, uh, it has many more hooks into the human brain. That's my personal opinion. Like eating a kind of bar is some is just different than most of the bars out there. Still, you know, this is how you create a billion dollar brand. I mean, I hate to say it, but Frito Lay is a master at this. They have eight billion, they have eight different one billion dollar salty snack brands, Mike. That's insane. They all have salt and carbs. But the forms are so unique in the mouth. The sensory experience is so unique that they just are memorable. Everybody knows the difference between a Frito and a, and a Cheetos puff and Lay's. They all seem like they have a purpose. <laughs> They've been around forever. You know, they look, the feel, the taste. You're right. right. But they're, they have, they cornered a sensory experience really early and well. And they market the crap out. So that helps. But I think my bias is obviously, as you know, you read the book, is product-led innovation. You know, it's consumer problem solving, essentially. Um, and that problem, maybe I'm just bored with like my ranch dip. So now I'm buying fancy hummus, right? That could be the problem. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this huge problem in life. But I'm not a big fan of just of trying to lean on the branding or the brand identity, even with a really clever consumer audience. I believe it. I believe it. Because... You know, I read a lot, right? Obviously, I have a lot of clients and stuff I work with, and everything you said is aligned with a lot of my personal entrepreneurial principles and philosophies, you know, testing, you know, validating, right? Like you say. Um, Saying you know, no I, to the constant stupid advice from all over the place. you always free. Dr. Richardson, your time is literally worth $10,000 a minute. I saw your fee online, <laughs> and uh, you've given us graciously an hour of your time. Uh, really appreciate it because, you know, I still think there is a market opportunity for more knowledge around CPG because yeah. again, your book and maybe like one other was the one that kind of popped up and I've read them both. So 
So I think there's a huge market opportunity and people are curious about. And I know for us as a veteran entrepreneurial community, you know, we don't have niche experts like yourself uh, getting in front of us very much. So um, as we close out here, um, what advice would you like to leave our listeners with? And then also as a community, how we can how can we support your work um, at your consultant agency? Um, what would I leave folks with? I would just I would say. Uh, if you're already selling something in market in my industry, you know, this is the time if you haven't to talk to your fans, make sure you understand why it's doing well. If it's not doing well, it'll also help you and really focus on iterating before you a start to go raise money, <laughs> uh, waste your time pitching people. Um, you really got to make sure that organically the business is um, growing really well without a lot of added expenditure because that's the sign of great product design which is what you really need um, to get big uh, I, I don't need any help I don't need help with my business from your audience but I will ask them to check out my book <laughs> so, I will is... personally put the link <laughs> to the book in our show notes and as I come across uh, CPG entrepreneurs yeah. Uh, in my veteran ecosystem, okay. right? I'll be sure to pass it along. So we appreciate having you on. Uh, where can people find you? How can they get a hold of you? So I, you know, the best way is probably on LinkedIn. So I, I post one to two times a day. I'm pretty active there. Uh, a lot of free content, links to my blog. So find me at Dr. James Richardson on LinkedIn. I always take messages. I always reply. You may not like the reply, but I always reply. Um, you can go to uh, premiumgrowthsolutions.com if you want to learn more about what I do as well. We appreciate you, Dr. Richardson. And for all our listeners, do me a favor. Go ahead and, and subscribe to the Dog Whistle Branding newsletter at the link in the show notes. If you want to reach out to me, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman or shoot me an email at mikeandweirironbound.com. Hope you all have a great rest of your week. Until next time, peace, love, and see you on the next episode.